Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. Resuming the All Marine Radio podcast. Hope you had a nice seven months or so. I did. Um, doing a little book writing. Doing a lot of post-traumatic winning stuff, both uh, in person. And then a lot of seminars online. So, yeah, the stuff I see, anybody who listens to this podcast knows it's, um, I mean, I'm privileged by hook or crook to have got myself into a position to witness miracles. And what I found is, if you tell people the truth, if you challenge them to be a better version of themselves, Watch what happened. And uh, what I love about post-traumatic winning is that Marines taught me every bit of it. And so uh, that keeps me busy. But um, I would see stories and I thought, you know, I'd like to talk about that. And constantly, you know, with the Pacific in the news, China in the news, and, and the the things going on in the South China Sea, Taiwan, Japan, Korea, Australia, all of that. Uh, I always thought, like, I miss talking to Grant. And so the first person you'll hear as I restart this podcast is none other than Grant Newsham. So sit back and relax. Here is none other than himself, Grant Newsham. It has been a while. But um, every time I would see a story during my hiatus, I would think of Grant Newsham. And so quite naturally, the first person I would have on when my hiatus kind of sort of comes to an end 
is the one and only Grant Newsham, and he joins us. And Grant, you're still in uh, Taipei, yes? Well, no, I'm taking a hiatus from Taipei as well. Um, actually, I'm, I'm in Hawaii at the moment. Oh, well, aloha. I, yeah, you know, I found the, um, the the clubbing scene just got too intense in Taipei, <laughs> so I you know, could only handle so much. <laughs> so I um, I bailed, no, and taking a hiatus at the same time. So I'm in, I'm, uh, in Hawaii at the moment. Now, you're no stranger to Hawaii. When was the first time you were there, and which island are you on, and what city? Where do you... Where do you call home when you're in Hawaii? Uh, Honolulu, but uh, everybody does, you know, unless you're a, a weirdo who lives on the big island. Uh, so Honolulu, sort of down by Ala Moana. And, uh, uh, but, but the first time I came here actually was in 1962. Whoa. Believe it or not. No, and, I don't. Uh, yeah, and the, the house is still there, uh, the one we lived in. And so I'm like more Hawaiian than most of the people here. No kidding. Um, so yeah. did your family move there? Yeah, we lived here for a little while. And um, wow, that was so uh, my, my ties here go way, way back. No, I'm joking, but they do. But um, but uh, my first tour out of uh, the basic school was at First Marine Brigade at Kaneohe Bay um, in 1985. And, you know, when they were giving out the assignments, they told me that I had a choice between uh, Camp Lejeune or Kaneohe Bay, Hawaii. <laughs> and I thought it was a trick question and that they were going to see if I asked for the good one, that they'd say, oh, you're being selfish. You're going to Camp Lejeune. And uh, so I figured I was thinking, overthinking it. So I said Hawaii. And it wasn't a trick question. So I got to come here straight out to the basic school. Wow. And I've been here a lot, you know, in and out for a number of years. So. Uh, it's a pretty familiar place, but it's uh, it's um, you know, like anywhere. It gets uh, more crowded, more um, what do you call it? Uh, the rougher parts of society have shown themselves all over the place. You've got a, a noticeable homeless problem, and it's dirty and not quite like it was, but still, it's you know, the, the weather is pretty good most of the time. Um, if you were going to give some uh, tourist advice and somebody was coming to Oahu, where would you tell them, hey, you've got to see this? I would say go to the punch bowl and you know, just look around and there's some good views from up there, but the whole uh, World War II thing is very well explained uh, up there in some displays they have, plus you see uh, the cost of it. Uh, another good place is um, Makapu Point, which if you go like east past Diamond Head and keep going, the road goes up, uh, kind of goes up the hill eventually. And you get these very nice coastal views uh, that and most people don't go out there. So that's a nice view as well. And then another thing there's a that I recommend, um, you know, the Arizona Memorial is pretty good. You know, that's OK. But at that uh, with the, the place where they have the Arizona Memorial, they've got uh, there's an old World War Two era submarine which is on display and it's been fixed up into working condition. And I, that's something really worth seeing when you go into that. Uh, and then imagine living on that for how long, how many months at a time and having the Japanese try to kill you. Uh, and you wonder how people stood it. And that that's something that I, I'd say more than the Arizona Memorial, it's that submarine that uh, gives you a good sense of, uh, 
sort of what people were capable of doing back then. And, and and then there's the Missouri. I mean, I was there last year, the year before, and I'd never been there. And I'm I'm born on December seventh, so um, I went out there. I didn't get a chance to go on the submarine, and I didn't have time to go on the on the Missouri. Um, but I did go I, go all over that place. I was at the place where the submarine is tied up. The line was too long. <laughs> Um, I had spoken both in the morning and the afternoon, and I was going to stand in line and then not get there. They advised me not to. And then went around to Ford Island. Mm-hmm. And I, I will just tell you this. If you're a history fan, um, it is very heady history because um, I was I was staying in Air Force VIP quarters at Joint Base Pearl Harbor Hickam, and um, which was right down on the water right where there's this quay wall and things like that you walked out the back door of this of this place i was staying and you walked right onto the onto the quay wall and you know and you're and it's right at the mouth of pearl harbor and you're and i was standing there and i thought how many guys you know this was the last thing they ever saw of you know american territory right when they they cleared the harbor to the great expanse of the pacific ocean and never came back yeah, it's, and it's so much, it resembles like it did back then. You know, you can still get a sense of it. Right. And, you know, you don't get, so you really don't get a sense of, you know, it's been so long that um, I'm not sure people really grasp the enormity uh, of that sacrifice. And, you know, it's back to the submariners, you know, the, the Royal Hawaiian Hotel, which is still there, this pink hotel in Waikiki. It's it's very interesting. It's it's you know pretty much unchanged. And but if you go inside it, you're suddenly away from all the concrete of Waikiki, the the hustle and bustle, the club scene, in fact. But um, you're in there, and one should remember that the the Royal Hawaiian was used exclusively for submariners uh, back then, and they died in unusually large numbers. I think that the closest you could have got would have maybe been an assault wave on one of the marine uh, fights in the on those Pacific islands. Um, but it was, you know, you, you wonder, you know, we had four, you know, there were four, remember that four-man special forces patrol that got run down in Niger a few years ago. And this was a national catastrophe. Uh, and back then, you know, they'd lose a few thousand guys a day. And people just took it and carried on and you know we've maybe we're coming to that point in history again but those are some things that i find kind of if i was in hawaii for a day or two you know you do want to get a sense of the scenery but there's also some some good history around oh yeah i as i was driving i went to a reception that i got invited to um i spoke at at the air at pacaf pac air force their uh commanders um symposium and uh they had a reception the first night and i was invited and they had it at the headquarters of pacaf which is in a building that still has the pock marks from the strafing that the japanese you know aircraft did that day and so you're you're standing there and um and you know they've they left it all as it is i mean these huge pock marks in the building and, uh, you know, it's just, uh, if you like history, 
Uh, it's very heady stuff. You know, as you said, big time history. And then my great uncle, uh, his name is, uh, he was lost at sea when the USS Halligan hit a mine, a destroyer. He was a gunnery officer on it. Uh, the USS Halligan hits a mine on the far side of, of Okinawa. So on the western side of Okinawa. And uh, the mine hit it just uh, adjacent to the forward magazine, blew the front part of the ship off, killed 110 of the 260 uh, sailors on board, and he was one of them. And so his name's on the punch bowl. I'd never been there and made the trip up there. And, um, you know, you one thing to see his name, and, and this is, you know, somebody from your family. Uh, lost at sea, I remember my grandmother talking about how difficult it was for my her mother, my great-grandmother, who I'd never met, but um, she said, you know, we never had a body, you know, to bury. We never had a place to go take flowers and visit. Um, you know, we would just look at the sea, the ocean, and uh, know that, you know, somewhere in the great expanse of the Pacific Ocean, you know, was somebody who we love very dearly. And, uh, and the maps... Uh, that they have up there, There's these gigantic maps, you know, uh, they look like uh, mosaic, uh, tile, mosaic, right? Sure. Tile mosaic yeah. maps, yeah. and that that show the different years of of the Pacific War, and uh, and but but you're right, it is an absolutely uh, majestic, beautiful place that hit, sits, you know, what just right on top of downtown Honolulu and overlooks it. So it's a absolutely beautiful place. I was surprised it was that close to the city. Let me, um, I want to talk about three things today. I want to talk about uh, the balloon thing and tell us what you know about it, Grant, and what are they doing. The next thing I want to talk about is the Philippines. You and I have talked um, for a while uh, when Mr. Duterte was the president of the Philippines before President Marcos was elected about, you know, the United States needed to do something to woo the Philippines back into the American orbit um, and possibly, you know, and I, I think in our wildest dreams it was, well, maybe get, you know, bases open to the United States again, but that seemed to be a bridge so far away. Yet, lo and behold, that's happened. And I don't think that little development has got nearly the um, attention that it, it it should. So I want to get your thoughts on that. And then, um, for those of you who don't know, uh, there's a book coming out. It's called When China Attacks, A Warning to America. It's going to be released uh, in its Kindle edition, going to be released on March 28th of this year. And it's written by none other than... Colonel Grant Newsham, and I'm looking at the cover when I say that. So I want to, I want to talk about your book and and get your thoughts on it, and uh, you can also tell us about the process of writing. So, um, Grant, talk about what's going on with these balloons. What are they doing? Um, they're sucking up in intelligence. You know, that's what balloons do. Think of it like a satellite, but at lower lower altitude. Uh, but they're also useful, actually, for um, improving accuracy and targeting. 
for those rods from God, I'm told they're called, for Chinese missiles, intercontinental ballistic missiles. Um, there's things that you can, intelligence you can gather, and scientific stuff uh, that ha actually improves the accuracy of these, of these things. So I'm told that's part of the game as well. But also there's a potential delivery capability. Um, you can either drop sensors you know, here and there from, from these things or even launch missiles. And the, Chi the Chinese have talked about all of these things for many years. It's nothing new. Uh, so there's basically those three, th three things that are going on. Uh, but a couple of th things about this is that I've got a, a friend, he's a retired Marine actually, who flies commercially these days. And he told me months ago, and I mean months ago, that uh, he and commercial pilots were um, spotting lots of balloons in between Hawaii and the US mainland. Um, and presumably they were coming from China. And so the whole thing's nothing new. You know, the, and my guess is, and this is where I would put all my money, is that if some guy in Billings, Montana, had not looked up in the air and seen a balloon and taken a picture of it, I don't think the US government would have told us anything about it. Um, that's how sort of, um, I think, longstanding this, this effort has been and how longstanding our response has been. Uh, and it does appear that we didn't detect a number of these things. Um, that may be a way to some have something to do with how the radars are set. You know, if the radar is sort of geared, is looking for something really fast, uh, it may not notice something like a balloon. And, but it is a, that was, but the, uh, it, I don't think we'd have heard anything about it um, if the administration's hand had not been forced. Um, and if there wasn't a picture of it, um, I suspect they'd have, you know, declared the guy insane or imagining UFOs, etc. Uh, so that's part of the part of the equation, um, to my way of thinking. Uh, and the, another question. So, and if you ask, I think once we get a look at what's actually on the balloons, beyond what we already know, I think we'll find most of the technology is familiar because it's ours. Uh, that is, I would fully expect that. Um, that is how. And uh, we've been, you know, we have turned over so much technology to the Chinese communists, uh, and they are just as smart as us. So they put these things together uh, that work pretty well. Um, you know, why would they use balloons instead of satellites? You know, I heard one uh, former PACOM commander actually kind of suggest the Chinese are really stupid or not very far advanced if they have to use balloons. Well, a balloon actually, as I understand it, is you can do an awful lot with it, just about everything you could with a satellite, um, but it cost a whole lot less. And the Chinese are thorough, if, if nothing. And they've got, of course, plenty of satellites. But you know, if you can augment these with balloons, well, why not? And we're not the only target of these, of course. You know, the Japanese, the Indians, the Latin Americans uh, have all been uh, the recipients of Chinese balloons for some time. And but this one just happened to sort of catch hold, catch catch public attention, and I think it did put the administration in a position where it couldn't respond, or it had to respond, and or it couldn't ignore it, so it had to respond. But one question that you do ask is, well, why would the Chinese do something like this? You know, because if you get caught, you know, it should be embarrassing. You know, you generally when you're spying, you don't want people to catch you. Um, but there's a, a couple things, and one is that the the Chinese are 
it's almost in their character. They're like a fat man at the buffet, you know, say some nice, say the, uh, the hotel Laguna beach <laughs> or that Ritz Carlton down in Laguna Niguel. Ah. And he's at the, he's at the breakfast buffet and he's full. He's a big fat guy and he, he's already eaten his fill and the doctor's telling him, man, you shouldn't eat. But they've, the guy brings in a brand new tray of eclairs and he's got to have them all for himself. And he just sweeps them all onto his plate. He just can't help himself. And the Chinese are kind of like that. They just can't help themselves. And there's another aspect as well that they might have fairly thought that the Americans wouldn't do anything. You'd look at all the things they've done over the years. You know, they ram one of our spy planes in 2001 or so, whenever it was, and, you know, they force it to land on Hainan Island and they basically humiliate us to get it back. And we do. We go along with it uh, just so we can get it back. They have stolen our underwater drones right from like right in front of U.S. Navy ships down in the South China Sea more than once. Uh, the response, nothing. Uh, they stole 23 million uh, personnel records from the Office of Personnel Management, including um, the, those uh, forms you fill out for a security clearance and the response from the Obama administration, nothing. They wouldn't even say the Chinese did it. Uh, you know, you just go down the list of these things and the Chinese reasonably thought, well, the Americans won't do anything. Uh, so I think that was also part of the, the equation. And they may also, and part of the deal here is that when the Chinese see our response, they're also sizing us up. Know, for this, you know, what are what is the penalty going to be for them? Uh, probably nothing, nothing that matters. And they look at how we how confused and the administration response has been. It's gone from just blithely dismissing it as not important, not a threat, to now it seems to be shoot on sight. Um, these are people who don't seem to have their wits about them, but are almost in reaction mode. And this, if this is what you do with a if you have this much trouble handling a balloon, how are you going to handle it when the Chinese uh, declare a no-go zone around Taiwan and tell the Americans to stand clear or it's nuclear war? Uh, you know, they, so they're getting they're getting a read on us. They, the Chinese do have a good sense of humor, and they may find note that well, we've um, you know we were on the receiving end of a uh, an American gas bag last October when Pelosi went to visit Taiwan. And now you're on the receiving end of a Chinese gas bag. How do you like it? But there's another part of the equation, I think, is that the Chinese have always hated the Americans sending surveillance planes off their coast, you know, in international waters, so it's legal. But they've been complaining about this bitterly for at least the last 20 years that I remember very well. And I have a feeling that if Secretary of State Blinken had gone through with this trip, um, had they not been forced to cancel it, uh, that the Chinese would have said, look, you know, how do you like it? You know, knock it off. And so it would have been sort of a talking but negotiating point uh, for them as well. But the last thing I would say is that this is the end of nothing. You know, the fact the Chinese got caught red-handed and, you know, stumbled over their response even more than we did, um, that this is just a little... Um, and you call it just some little sort of flurry of punches in a 15 or 20 round fight, if not longer. And they will be back. They will not let up. And you do keep in mind that when everybody is looking in one direction, say up in the skies, 
for balloons that the Chinese are smart enough to uh, be operating in a lot of other places. So it's always good to look where everybody isn't. But we, I think we're, the Chinese have called it game on once again. And this balloon thing will it'll be forgotten in a bit and there will be some other outrage on the part of the Chinese that um, will leave uh, our side scrambling much more than it should be my sense of it. So those are just some few ideas. You know, I did actually, I happened to be in Bozeman, Montana a few days ago. Um, so I was actually in Bozeman, which isn't really Montana. That's like hipster Montana. <laughs> Montanans will tell you. So it suits me, of course. But they, um, but uh, that's just down the road from Billings. Um, you know, like a couple hours if you're going 140 miles an hour. But the, um, but the, which, the, which, you, the could, which you could do in Montana. Hmm? Which you could do in Montana. Yeah, that's pretty much it. But remember the, the excuse was given by the administration that, well, we can't shoot it down because it'll hurt people on the ground. Now, I was, I am familiar with rural Montana. I would like my odds. Um, you know, they could probably shoot down a thousand balloons and it probably wouldn't hit anything. But our side, you know, we didn't seem to have our, our story straight uh, on this. And it, it, you know, if you, once again, if you're sitting in Beijing, you must be R-F-L-M-A-O-ing yourself. You're just laughing. <laughs> you know, we send a balloon and they do all this. Um, as I said, when it, if we really play rough, well, what will these, maybe they'll be even more confused. Uh, so that should be just my, my reading of it. Not only will they shoot our balloon down, but they will then issue the strongly worded right, statement from the State Department. Oh, yeah. And in the end, they will keep trying to call us, you know, on these hotlines. <laughs> you know, the Secretary, it, Secretary it of Defense, the PACOM commander, and, you know, it's all this, oh, please, baby. Man, I love you, baby. Why won't you pick up the phone? <laughs> yeah, I mean, talk about being a desperate suitor. Um, we sort of give new meaning to the to the word. And, uh, and then I think you just wait, wait a little bit, and the visits will be back on. And it's the Yankees who all think that if they can just talk to people, they can work anything out. It's this American conceit that, you know, we've never met a, you know, never, whatever, everybody's a potential friend. Once they get to know us, well, you know, they, they'll see that there's nothing to worry about and we'll be pals for a good long while. Well, the good news, Grant, is that it was not an intelligence failure. Oh, not at all. Right, it was, it was, it was kind a of success. a dom- It was kind of a domain awareness situation. I heard of that. Uh, yeah, they, uh, I, you know, they, it's it's interesting. I would think the descendants of husband Kimmel um, at Pearl Harbor probably said, "Yeah, you know what? That sounds like such a good answer, right? <laughs> I know the Pacific yeah. Fleet is a smoking hulk right now, but this was not an intelligence failure. It was a domain failure." What's a domain? Yeah. I don't know, but I mean, somebody told me that what I should say. But I mean, it's it's comedy, right? It's not. It's oh, not a. Yeah. It's not intelligent. What yeah. what is it? Got it. Well, you know, speaking of Hawaii, I'll just throw this in because I think many Marines would understand it. Is when I was with the First Marine Brigade, I would serve as the duty officer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, once a month, and you know how that is. You have to stay up all night. You know, doing absolutely nothing. And you know, in your Charlie uniform, so it's like uh, Job in his hair suit. Nightmare in Hawaii. But anyway, you remember before the Jap- on the day the Japanese attacked, there was a radar, yeah, uh, facility or sort of station up mm-hmm. on the North Shore, the spotted mm-hmm. incoming aircraft, and 
you know, they tried to notify somebody and they were told that some B-17s coming from the mainland. Yep. Don't worry. And so it was those guys who'd gone down in history as the, these sort of the bums who, you know, could have stopped Pearl Harbor, even if they probably couldn't. But the first time I had the duty officers thing, and, you know, you think in Kaneohe Bay, this is the first place the Japanese actually attacked. It was like five minutes before they hit Pearl Harbor to take out the long-range uh, reconnaissance aircraft. And the, I remember the adjutant gave me my instructions. And you know, here I am. I'm the guy in the Pacific at Pearl Harbor. And he he points out this big stack of binders. I mean, you know, just there must have been 15 of them. And they're huge. <laughs> and he says, if anything happens, look at the binders. And then his final parting advice, and I'm pretty sure it was the uh, same that those guys at that radar station got was, and don't step on your crank. <laughs> and that was my welcome to <laughs> such a high responsibility in the Sandwich Islands. And um, the only reason I didn't step on my crank was because nothing ever happened. So. <laughs> you know, one of the things that happened to me at the reception that I went to the first time I was there, and I, and I, and I went back two times. So I, I was, I've been there three times in the last two years. Um, and so every time I, I go see something else and, and whatnot, but I was introduced to the base historian. I'm just standing at this reception, you know, and there's all these air force guys in uniform and their spouses. And, you know, I'm, you know, this doofus, you know, former Marine standing there and get introduced and, and whatnot. And people come and say hi to me. And then I'm standing there with somebody and they said, Hey Mac, I want to introduce you to the base historian. And my head snapped. I said, who? They said, the base historian. I said, hi, um, how are you? And we started talking. And he says to me, he was a big baseball fan. He's a Cincinnati Reds fan. <laughs> and he said, <clears throat> he said, hey, are you any relation to the guy who managed the Reds? I said, yeah, that was my dad. <laughs> and he said, so we started talking baseball. And he looks at me and goes, hey, anytime you want to tour this, I can show you some really cool stuff. And I said, uh, I don't get done tomorrow until like four, but I'll get up early and go like five in the morning, six in the morning. He said, I'll meet you at seven down on the quay wall. And I said, okay. And so um, he's, we're talking about those two guys. Um, one of them stays in the Air Force and retires out of the, you know, he was in the Army Air Corps at the time, but he retires out of the Air Force, you know, got hauled in front of every hearing and whatnot and told the story of we're out there, you know, this radar thing is something new. We pick up the phone, we call, there There wasn't even a COC or anything like that, right? We call the, the we call the officer of the day, essentially. And they said, oh yeah, you know, there, there's some B-17s we know that are coming in, thanks. And that was it. And you know, it, it, it was interesting because the base historian said he he became a very, polished speaker about this incident with the constant lament that you know we picked up the phone and we sent a warning and it, it went to nowhere and um, 
we wished it would have turned out a different way. Stayed in the Air Force uh, his entire career and then retired at some point. So kind of an interesting oh. little aside there. Yeah, you, know, the, I, you didn't know that the um, the officer of the day they called was uh, First Lieutenant Newsham. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, well, there's think, another of, think about that. There's no combat operations center. You yeah. know, the, probably the closest <laughs> thing to anything is the tower, right? Yeah. And what the hell do those guys know? Nothing. You know, and we, I mean, it's not like we're configured then the way, you know, we are now. It wasn't it was nothing. And so, um, interesting. Talk to me about, talk to me about, talk to me about the Philippines. Um, you know, you and I, you and I talked about this a lot about, you know, that this whole idea of, of the South China Sea, if, if, if there's no place that you can be, you know, in residence, if, if as in the lead up to hostilities, if there's nobody that will open their door, it's it makes the problem very difficult. And I remember, you know, you and I talking about, you know, if the United States could somehow or other after the, the election, um, not knowing who would win, if they could somehow or other gain access, that completely changes the dynamic of the South China Sea. Um, the United States has. And, you know, hats off to President Marcos and son of. And um, I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts. And I don't think I've seen enough written that talks about what a um, what a big deal this is. Um, yeah, this is good news uh, to my way of thinking. Now, keep in mind, it is the Philippines, so things have a way of changing. Uh, but this this is something that some people should take credit for. I guarantee you that the people who do are not the ones who should. But that's the human experience. Uh, this is, I think, largely the result of some Filipinos um, at their ruling class level who carefully kept things alive during that Duterte era. And you remember it was Duterte who called President Obama he, he said, son of a whore, and said it in the Philippines. So that gives you some idea of just how uh, effective the Obama administration was at keeping our relations in the Pacific. And then the Trump administration came in, and they, you know, following that, you know, it's pretty easy to, to do better. And they didn't, um, uh, you know, so the Trump administration sort of kept the relationship alive. We didn't respond to uh, everything Duterte was doing and this and that. And we must, I think we had some quiet things going, but it's really on the other side of the equation, of the, the, the table. The There were some very good Filipinos at that ruling class level, say, who kept it alive, who knew the importance of this relationship with the Americans. And they knew what it had already been agreed to under the Ed, EDSA or EDCA, um, which was to give, it's basically, as for reasons that don't live and breathe it, it, it gives the Americans access to a number of different Filipino locations, bases, as it is. We have to build or improve some of them, but it gives us access throughout the country. And this was actually worked on, um, well, goodness, 2013, 14 or so. Um, so the it's actually been arranged. And then Duterte came in and um, uh, put a, a hold on it. But so the idea was there, but there were Filipinos who knew that when the time came that they would get things going. And that's kind of what they did. And with Marcos, uh, the new president, you know, he's not Duterte and he has a clearer sense of things, but it was some other unsung 
uh, Filipinos who, who really deserve, uh, I think, a lot of credit for that. And on the U.S. side, you know, they did, you know, they were quiet. They didn't push things too much. They took advantage of uh, opportunities to train in the Philippines to do things. And then the Chinese kind of kept stepping on their cranks because um, they, you know, they had um, one bought off Duterte and a bunch of others. But what happened is during that era, there was a few million Chinese who entered the Philippines. And it's not as if jobs are plentiful. And many of these people, you know, were involved in uh, dubious activities, to put it nicely. Uh, a lot of the Chinese investment never showed up that in anywhere anyone could see. And the Chinese kept muscling in on Filipino maritime territory just to the just off the West Coast, humiliating the Filipinos, uh, you know, pretty, um, you know, on what do you call it? Almost running down their Coast Guard, Navy right. ships, the right. Filipino right. fishermen only, they could only go where the Chinese let them. And so the Chinese sort of ruined their image, such as it was. And when the time came that Duterte had to leave and they got a new president, that the situation was very well sent, it was set up. And the, the Biden administration, you know, happened on their watch and, you know, they deserve some credit for that. Uh, but it was really it was work that was, as is usually the case, it's work that was done by other people um, that it comes to fruition uh, when someone else with a limited um, connection to it um, comes along. But another thing I would, would notice, and it's an anecdote, is that this was probably two or three years ago at least, uh, that um, you may remember that Subic Bay, there was a ship a good chunk of it, a shipyard in Subic Bay, the the what used to be a U.S. Navy port, right. as a, a very good uh, harbor in the Philippines, that it, um, it it went bankrupt, and there was fear the Chinese were going to buy it, and ultimately an American investment firm swooped in and scooped it up, and this was uh, must have, I don't know a year ago, but it was before this latest success with the U.S. Filipino relationship. Well, and, and, and if anybody is, is has listened to Almer in radio for a while, you'll recall the, the Grant talking about this, and you know, uh, Grant, you were vehement that somebody needs to boot somebody in the ass, right, to make this an American asset because it cannot be a Chinese asset. It simply cannot. We cannot, we cannot allow that. And I remember you being absolutely adamant about it. Well, I think I actually knew what was coming, um, just like I did with that balloon by virtue of being in Montana. But, but you know, what I will say is that I have a friend who um, is on the government payroll. You sound like, <laughs> an, you sound like an Italian now. I got a friend. Yeah, I got, I got, I got friends. I, yeah, I, I know people. And, uh, and yeah, I was over in, uh, I was over in Jersey. And I know people, but uh, no, I'm sure that anybody from Jersey is going to think poorly of me. Yeah, I know. But um, but uh, it's just a friend, and he's really good. You know, we we make fun of like U.S. government people, particularly involved in foreign affairs matters, and rightfully so. But he is excellent, and I was um, I would meet him frequently when I would uh, go uh, go somewhere in Asia, and. I remember when this came up, I remember him, we were talking about this and I remember him saying, well, I'm going to do something. And he did, actually. It's a bit of backstory. Um, but it was one guy who knew what needed done and went out and did it. 
And wow. that, so that whole Subic Bay thing was, uh, was a huge success, along with all the other Philippine uh, stuff. But, but like any, whenever anything really good happens, you know, some of us by nature, we're kind of wondering, oh man, what, when's the bad stuff coming now? But this is, this is a very positive development. Additionally, you'll note the Japanese are really getting in with the Philippines. Right. Um, and to the point they're going to deliver, I think, defense equipment, which they never have done. And but the Japanese that can look at the map just as well these days as they could in 1941, and they know the importance of the Philippines. So they're coming out of their shell in a big way, and will be very helpful for us there. So this is a is a re, if you look at the map, this is a a big win for us. But like any win, it's, it doesn't mean you can't lose the next round. So it'll take some work. The um. In fact, I think there's been, what, meetings between President Marcos and, and the Japanese? Is it he, he in Tokyo right now? That's right, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. I just And I saw a headline earlier today that said, Philippines to review tripartite agreement with U.S.-Japan, according to President Marcos. And I'll just read very quickly. President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. said the government will review a possible tripartite agreement with the Philippines, two close allies, the United States and Japan. Marcos made the remark in an interview with Japan's Kyoto News. Did I say that right? Mm -hmm. Of course, yeah, that'll work. Yeah. All right, mm -hmm. according to the Presidential Communications Office. Um, quote, it is something that we certainly are going to be studying upon my return to the Philippines. I just, I think just part of the continuing process of strengthening our alliances because in this rather confusing and I dare say dangerous situation we have, I'm not talking only about the South China Sea. I'm not only talking about the Indo-Pacific region, but of course there is a conflict still ongoing in Ukraine and the rather disturbing effects that it has all around the world. So, I mean, this is such, and, and, and that's why I don't think it has been written about this grant because I mean, when you looked at the, the lay of the land six months ago, well, certainly before the election in the Philippines, it, I mean, it, it was not, that it was, it was bad, right? There was not very much good news out there. And, and to, to read that, I mean, I, I, it's almost stunning simply to read, uh, and what President Marcos has had the courage to do because after he got elected, he was very noncommittal, right? In terms of, you know, I'm going to walk him in a line and, you know, we will have a relationship with China. We will have a relationship. He's very noncommittal. And if you were, if you, you know, if you're an American or, or somebody who's, you know, involved in, in a Western, you know, alliance nation, you looked at that and you're like, geez, he has been absolutely not tacking in the middle of the road. Right. And it's I'm, I'm kind of curious what the Chinese are going to do. Because he's kind of flicking their nose a little bit, and uh, but I, I mean these developments to me are stunning, you know. And where the Philippines sit in the South China Sea with proximity, you know, and we've we've talked about the first island chain and, and China attempting to leapfrog that and and whatnot. Well, I'll tell you what I think the whole calculus of that equation changes when Japan at least says they're gonna they're gonna invest as big as they have since World War II in defense, that the Taiwanese are now talking about, you know, stronger defense in their debate in their, their nation, and the Philippines are doing what they're doing. So I, I just, uh, 
I, I mean, some of these events, in my opinion, are pretty stunning. Are you surprised that Marcos is, is doing what he's doing? Or did you think, you know, that he was kind of sandbagging and, and he would head this way regardless? I'm not that surprised um, at what he's what he's done. You know, he's had to tread carefully when he first got in. But see, I'm not really surprised. Uh Part because I have a little sense of some of the behind the scene uh, workings on the Filipino side, uh, but it, partly also it couldn't be any worse than it was under Duterte. But you, but you notice even he only did so much to uh, let the Fil- uh, the Chinese little did a lot to let them in, but even he didn't sell out the Philippines anywhere near what he could have, and that reflects that sort of anti-Chinese most pro-West thinking within a good chunk of Philippine society uh, from one from top to bottom. Uh, but there's plenty of the other too. But so I wasn't entirely surprised, but was a little surprised at just how um, how quickly uh, the that agreement worked out or that it was announced in the, but I had some, some inklings of it from things I'd heard. Um, but I, it's also worth noting just his credit never gets get where it should be. But I remember, goodness, around 2014, 15, maybe a little earlier, there were some younger Marine officers working in the bowels of Camp Smith at Marfor Pack who were really working on this, doing the, the really the, the spade work for it and putting it all together. And they, it, of course, all came to naught once Duterte uh, took over. But the, the work had been done. And I'll guarantee you that none of these guys will get any recognition for what they did. Um, but without them, there wouldn't be any of this. Uh, and it was, uh, you know, so a lot of it, so this is good, almost over a decade that it took to bring this to, to real fruition. And as always the case, there's a lot of people who play a role, but the, but the ones who really um, build the, the, the basis of it, you know, they say they tend to disappear and nobody ever tracks them down and slips them a 20. Uh, as they should, or give them some recognition. Uh, you know, I could even name names here, but they're guys who really did a good job and deserve a lot of credit for this. The no, I mean, stun in my opinion, stunning um, tectonic plate movement type of events in the South China Sea, and and the epicenter of all of it is 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 in the Philippines, and in my opinion, and but. I mean, big things coming out of you know Japan and and Taiwan as well. Um, let's talk about your book, "When China Attacks: A Warning to America." Um, so it were, will be released uh, in Kindle edition and all of the forms on March twenty eighth. That's right. Yeah, so all forms. So there will actually be like a book that you can pick up at Amazon or Barnes and Noble wherever. Um, so it it will be coming out. Um, the background to this is I was minding my business about a year ago, <laughs> maybe longer, and I was approached by a publishing company. And if I would write a book, and you know, I'm always welcome and star for attention. So I was glad to at least be asked. So, so, and you know, they gave me the title. And so of course, you know, Newsham's thinking, you know, it, uh, you know, just spend, you know, spend a few weekends with, you know, clear this clear the schedule, no clubbing for three weekends. And you sit back with the old manual typewriter and let it rip. And holy, and it wasn't that. It was like a thousand times more work than I imagined. And to the point there's no 
possible way I would have done it again. My constitution is not set up for this kind of um, hard work. Uh, no, not it never has been. <laughs> so, <laughs> Sixty-six years, it is no more well inclined to, uh, to doing this sort of effort. Um, but it took probably eleven months or so to write at least, um, and the I found that it was a much more um, complex problem uh, than writing the usual thousand word essay, basically, because this is like 70,000 words uh, on it. But say they gave me the title. And, you know, so so what I did is, uh, you know, I, I purposely didn't read any of the books that have been written about war with China, you know, this issue, because right? there's a lot of them that have been written right. in recent times, and all of them are good, you know, I, as I'm pretty sure. Um, come, come on, but, you know, but, they're not. Uh, well, actually, they, you know, if you for me, they are, you know, there's always something there's a, just, I can think of one that isn't, but the other ones, you know, they're all okay. Um, and I didn't want to be influenced, you know, so I looked at this and I was told you're writing for the trade press and the trade press I learned is, uh, the, the publishing world's uh, expression for regular people. Um, and so <laughs> that kind of helps because that's usually who I write for. Um, and you know, rather than I say, you know, rather than the you know, like the 12 people at think tanks who might read the book or at least read the footnotes to see if they're cited in it and then put the book down. Um, but it's written for the, the average person who doesn't live and breathe Asian defense um, or China issues, but is interested, you know, is interested in it. So that's how I did it. And, you know, I sort of looked at it as what would you tell somebody? You know, what story would you tell if someone asked you what's the uh, about you know when China attacks, you know that Chinese threat, you know, you know what is it, um, and how do you deal with it? So well, let, let me read a little blurb from the uh, from the tease for the book. All right, mm. a, a warning about America's impending war with China. The conflict is coming. A former Marine intelligence officer shows, and we're not ready, but it's not too late to prepare. So it's a sounds kind of ominous, Grant, right? In, in, it is yeah. impending war with China. The conflict is coming. We're not ready. Um, so give us, and I want to talk about it a little bit today, and then we'll talk about it again the next time we come on. So, so give us the setup of the book. Um, how do you look at the problem? Uh, throughout the book, can you kind of tell us, give us the lay of the land of the book? Well, it's got a very powerful narrative arc, and the <laughs> and the uh, the character development is just um, it, it's it's thorough. I mean, you'll you'll be impressed with this. It's uh, um, well, okay. Besides that, which is that's a given, of course. Um, the you know I start with the premise that we might lose, um, and that you know i'm serious about that you know i would put our well you you've said you've been consistent you know and with this message it's not too late to prepare but they're preparing for war make no mistake about it and, and that's what i get in so the what I, the title's a little bit deceptive in in a sense because i i'd make the case that um, china has already attacked um then they've been attacking us for a long time now and the, the Chinese concept of warfare is very different than us. You know, we look at it as like a hundred yard dash where, you know, gentlemen, you know, take your mark and then the gun goes off. 
but to the Chinese, that you know that the actual kinetic, the actual shooting, is only something if the rest of their attacks haven't worked. Um, that you know you have the the psychological warfare, the legal warfare, taking over international organizations, um, getting international law changed to suit uh, Chinese um, ideas of what the law should be, or just ignoring it. Um, you subvert your enemies. You get proxies to do your work for you, as we've talked about many times. You know, Wall Street and the business class. Um, additionally, you get you know the biological warfare. You know, this whole Wuhan flu, the COVID thing. Um, you know, call it what you want, but it sure looks like successful, even if opportunistic. Uh, biological warfare, uh, chemical warfare, the drug assault on us, this killing. You know. Up, you know, getting close to a hundred thousand Americans a year, and these, and, and at the same time, China is building this very powerful military that is actually capable of killing five thousand of us in an afternoon uh, if they set things up right. And so that's what I'm getting at is that they've done all of this, and this goes back, goodness, at least thirty years uh, that they started, and particularly the economic. Uh, assault on the United States, and that shipped all of so much of our manufacturing and and the jobs that went with it uh, has gutted. You know, you just go to any big American city, and you'll find some place that used to be a decent neighborhood, a bunch of them, and now it's got us worse than a slum. And you'll find, and that is the result of Chinese successful economic warfare. So the, the, my point is, you they got all these other warfares that they've already started that are part of their strategy. And the kinetic warfare, when and if that comes, is almost an afterthought. It's the last thing you need to do to get what you want, if you need to go to that that far. And you may not even have to if you've done your uh, the, the prep or preparation work uh, right. And it, that all that other stuff uh, broadly goes under the, the, type, the uh, category of political warfare. Um, and that is um, you know, sort of the, the basic approach I take is to point out that what we might lose, that the war has already started, uh, and that we need to do some things about it. And I, I, there's a good, a fairly big part that does does offer suggestions as to what we do uh, on this. And then it, it's um, you know I say it's written parts of it I think are I actually like a lot that um, you know because it's sort of ideas that I have developed over the last 40 years um, of this and, and uh, you, know, um, you know, having a, a sort of a background of sorts in southwest Pennsylvania um, with the old coal and steel industries that I had a, a pretty good view of what happened to my cousins uh, and those families when all of that stuff, the economy died and that it you know, it really it does for some reason it, it resonates with me. And um, having worked for Wall Street, a Wall Street firm for a long time as well, uh, that I have a pretty good sense of the complete lack of concern, lack of compassion from that part when the Chinese uh, sort of got them to sell out their countries. Uh, so that so there's it's the really it's my take on things, and I say that's why I didn't didn't read the other books because I didn't want to be, you know, I want to just be my, you know, uh, commentary on what happened. 
And you know, it's, I suppose it's kind of a is a wake up call of sorts, you know, to to America and some Americans. And the idea is someone might read it and say, so this is the problem, this is what it looks like, and you know, this is what we what we ought to do. What? Uh, first of all, little background. Um, you went out to the Pacific. You said 1985 as uh, for the. You, you lived out there in 62. You go back there professionally in 85. When did you go back there? Uh, you spent most of your life out there, yes? Yeah, I guess I, uh, a good chunk of it. You know, it, it, it would be most of it if I was like 48. But, um, <laughs> so it's a good chunk of it. I think from about 1990 90 or so. But I actually started with on China in about 1980, 81. Um, you know, they really looking at the the issue. And one of the first things that I ever did, sort of, uh, I don't call it professionally, but um, trying to be professional, was I wrote a law review article on the future of Hong Kong uh, in 1982. That's still on the internet somewhere. And so that's goodness, 40 years or so. And what 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 was your prediction? <sighs> the Chinese were going to step on their cranks. No, it was um, <laughs> that would that's only Newsham as duty officer that Connie would pay. But they um, uh, no, it was uh, it was uh, sort of I examined the legal issues involved in the turnover. But um, and I pointed out some of the problems if China did not allow it to continue as it was. And I think I suggested as well that sometimes they can't help but help themselves. I didn't think of the fat man at the buffet analogy uh, at the time, but the you know you try when you write these things you like to say look it, certainly people aren't this stupid right. you know, and right. there's it, no it's, it's, there's no McNamara prediction there's no way Joe Biden will ever become the president of the United States there's just no way it won't okay. happen. Well, I, I haven't read it lately, but I know I didn't <laughs> say something on those terms. <laughs> No, no way. That was me like 24 months ago, something like that. Right? No way. That will never happen. I will guarantee you that's not happening. Take it to the bank. But think of, I mean, but when you, I mean, the things that you talk about, you know, relative to political war, you know, the fentanyl problem in the United States, right? Much of it coming from China. Uh, COVID, you talked about. the warfare that goes on in our universities, you know, all of a sudden, you know, the UPenn Center, you know, with with the former vice president of the United States, Joe Biden. And where does much of the money come to fund, right, the Biden Center at the University of Pennsylvania? Comes from Chinese people, right? Um, what they've done in the entertainment world, right, which casts the image of China. Right. And, you know, you don't you don't film it the way we you don't take the Taiwan patches off top, uh, Tom Hanks's jacket. Guess what? You will not show that here. And we are not simply interested in you doing a second take and a cut for China that will appear nowhere on the planet. And so, I mean, when you look at these these separate efforts that you you know made me smart about over the time you've come on, um, I I. You know, if you can't see that we're already at war and we are aiding and abetting an enemy of ours in order to make money. And so and then it'll be it's it's curious now that we've actually 
shot down balloons, right? We're shooting things down now. Does that have any impact on, you know, our desire to invest our uh, pension funds in Chinese securities? Will that stop? And so, you know, again, it's just, you know, all the things you've taught us, Grant, but if you can't see that the war is already ongoing and, and, and again, that's why the events in the Philippines are so significant, but it, 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 if you can't see that, then you're not looking because it's right in front of your face. Yeah. You know, that's what, you know, that is, you know, kind of how, what I was trying to do is just point all this stuff out say, in a way that people might find entertaining or interesting. Right. Cause it is, I say parts of it do read, um, you know, like literature, you know, you, you'll see if you, I guarantee once you read it, you'll see what I'm getting at. Um, but is it trying to, uh, is it for the guy who doesn't live and breathe it? Right. Uh, this is why you ought to be worried. This is what it looks like. This is how serious it is. And it, it re- I really can't overstate just the the, the seriousness of the situation. Uh, and, and I try to get that across, but at the same time, offer some uh, solutions. You know, one of the biggest problems with writing the book was that I would say every day I see two or three new examples of successful Chinese political warfare, uh, subversion, what have you, that ought to go into it, you know, every single day. Uh, and, you know, you almost, so you, at some point you kind of have to say, okay, it stops here. Um, plus the book, for every example I give, there is probably 20 others that I could have. And the tendency is to, you know, to include everything. So you end up with this, you know, 6,000 page book. Uh, but so that was one of the challenges actually was there's just so much to work with. And the you just, you can't include everything, but also you kind of don't want to. You're telling a story. Right. Um, you know, and I'm, you know, you channel the persona of like Al Sharpton and Pat Buchanan. And, you know, you've got this, you know, somebody, hopefully you can keep somebody uh, interested in it long enough to um, leave with a sense that, um, you know, we're in trouble. And, you know, I, you know, I just don't know, we've, well, we've talked about this so many times, but uh, that the book is the sort of the, the outcome of a, a number of years thinking about the, uh, the issues. And, um, uh, but my goodness, it was a lot of work. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, never, I can barely make my bed in the morning. Um, Se- 70,000 words. That's a lot of words, man. It, I think the original draft was a lot longer. Was it? Um, but it, but 70, yeah, 70, you'd think, oh, 70,000, we'll make it a, make it a fourth weekend at the Hotel Laguna Beach and in the writer's cottage. But now this was sort of all consuming and, um, you know, fortunately, I did have a little bit of help. But, um, the book is called, is titled, When China Attacks, A Warning to America. It's written by Grant Newsham, the one and only. And let me just throw this out to everybody who's listening. Um, if you have a question for Grant, uh, shoot me an email uh, about his book, uh, something in his book. Um, shoot me an email. And uh, when I have him back on in another week or so, uh We'll uh, we'll tee up the questions for Grant about uh, about his book, but uh, but you know, Grant, I, again, I, I think what's to me w- one of the most frustrating parts of this. It's not like people don't understand. To me, in my opinion, anyway, 
um, they simply cast it aside for the opportunity to make more money, which is uh, which is pretty gross, pretty ugly, um, and that you know we're funding much of this. You know that American parts are in 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 much of these things, and we don't have the will. Uh, to say, I'm sorry, but there are limits to even what we will allow. And so to me, that's, a, that's very concerning. But to everybody, send, send your questions, and uh, I will pose them to Grant uh, when we talk about his book here in, in, in about another week. Grant, a final comment from you about, um, about the book, about the Philippines, the balloons, uh, or a current event. Hmm. And again, the book comes out on March 28th. You can buy it at your local bookseller, or you can get it online through Amazon. I checked out the the little website there; it's up there, and uh, that's where you can. That's where I noticed that uh, the publication date is March 28th, and the Kindle uh, edition will be released that day. So, give me a final thought on any of this. Yeah, you know, I would. Um, you know, one thing I would say is that we're right in the middle of history. Uh, you know, I like reading about history and particularly like wars and that sort of stuff. And But usually the, the wars and the human misery it comes with it. It's always happening to somebody else, uh, which makes it a little easier to read about, maybe more fun to read about. But, um, you know, we're in the, at a point really where I uh, am not at all confident about what's coming. You know, I think the history is being made right around us and we're going to be a part of it. Um, you know, that's... You know, and that, you know, you can take to the bank. Now, I think it is a, you know, this is historic times and it's rare that people get to live through it. Um, you know, we'll see how, you know, our, our generations you know, measure up to this, but we don't have much time left to try to, we have a chance to prevent what's coming, but um, it's, uh, it's about as bad as you think. And last thing I would note is that, while I think the, the Wall Street and our business class capacity for almost treason uh, is pretty much unlimited, you know, notice the public response to this balloon. Um, and I mean the public response. And this was a lot of people looking up there saying, well, what the hell are you doing, uh, Team Biden or, or ruling class? What are you doing? And I think that there's still within the American public writ large, uh, there's a, I think, a potential to wake up and defend ourselves. Uh, so that's what I'm, you know, sort of an optimist would say that, but you certainly saw that in that response. Uh, there was enough to get the, the White House to kind of take it seriously, uh, which says, I think shows just how, and, you know, given their preference for not taking it seriously, that I think that the, the public to say, does have uh, a lot of clout once they're aware of the problem and maybe they'll, stay aware of it so there got it um are you writing any current event stuff or are you simply uh have you simply been devoted to your book um i've been writing no i actually have to write stuff about one a week so i have been doing the little the the weekly things got it. um but i hadn't wanted to bother you so i haven't sent them your way well yeah um, i haven't i've been i've been off um, speaking, writing, doing mm -hmm. my own thing for a while. So uh, yeah. please send please send yeah. them. Mm -hmm. And uh, first of all, it's uh, great to catch up with you. Congratulations on the um, the looming 
publication of your book. Uh, and again, the title is When China Attacks a Warning to America by Grant Newsham. It's scheduled to be published on March 28, 2023. Grant, thank you so much. Um, uh, great to talk to you again on a personal note. Always um, um, fascinating to uh, listen to you wax eloquent about the events in the Pacific. And thank you so much for doing this. Well, pleasure. No, I appreciate the, the opportunity as always. So thanks very much. That'll do it. On this Monday, the day after the Super Bowl. Thanks for listening, as always. And uh, if I could, if I could help you, if I could help somebody close to you, um, don't hesitate. All the contact information at posttraumaticwinning.com and All Marine Radio finds its way to me. So by all means, please don't hesitate. And, you know, the um, as I do this work, the thing that I love about it the most is that it's quintessentially Marine. It works. It fucking works. And I've done so much work in the last year with people that have no connection to the military at all. You know, civilians men and women who've been raped, been abused. And one of the coolest experiences I've had, that person told me, you know, meeting you has made my life, has made my life like the movie Wizard of Oz. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, well, before I met you, my life was in black and white. A lot of trauma, a lot of it as a kid. And I've been in therapy for decades. And then I meet you and I study post-traumatic winning with you. And for the first time in my, my life, I see the world in color. I see the beauty in the world. I see the joy in the world. And I can't tell you how excited I am to be alive, which is a somewhat new feeling to me. And so I see that on a regular basis. And I, I want you to know with certainty, if there's any way that I could help you, if there's any way I could help you help somebody else, right? get in touch with me your part is really important and that is the way I meet people it's somebody of great credibility in their lives looks at them and says hey I know somebody you should meet I know somebody that can help you and I'm going to introduce you to a, a former Marine and I'm going to let him tell his story to you his name is Wade Cates so, another miracle. So, that offer stands. If you need to, take me up on it. On that note, thanks for listening. And as always, my thanks to Grant for coming on. He's the best. 
So I'm not sure how much I'll do this. My goal is once a week right now. And then we'll go from there. So on that note, have a great day. I'm Mike McNamara. This is All Marine Radio. The program I do is called Post Traumatic Winning. You can find that at posttraumaticwinning.com. And as I said, if I can help you or if I can help you help somebody else, don't hesitate. I'm out. <laughs>